You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual I get a lot of email. I rarely read emails on the Savage Love cast. Emails are for the column, Savage Love, for the Savage Love Letter of the Day. But I wanted to read this email. We're going to be talking later in the show with Mistress Matisse about SESTA, a new law passed by Congress, not yet signed by Donald Trump as of this recording, that holds websites criminally liable for ads posted to them by people doing sex work and lumps all people doing sex work into the sex trafficking victim category, whether someone is doing sex work of their own free will or not. After SESTA made it out of Congress, even before Trump signed it into law, which everyone expects him to do probably this week, Craigslist pulled down its personal ads. Craigslist had already pulled down its escorting ads. And shortly after Craigslist pulled down its personal ads, Backpage was seized and shuttered by the federal government. Backpage is a classified site where people did advertise to do sex work. And I got an email after Backpage was yanked down just yesterday, and I wanted to share it with all of you, particularly with anyone out there who thinks that everyone doing sex work is a victim of trafficking who needs to be saved or rescued, particularly anyone who thinks that it is a good thing that Websites where escorts could advertise their services are being yanked down. Dear Dan, I have been doing body rubs for a dozen years or so now, advertising first on Craigslist, then on Backpage. With no way for new clients to find me now, I'm desperately afraid I'll be homeless soon. I give hand jobs for a living. I don't take my clothes off or let them touch me on the front. I maintain an office in a nice building for safety and professionalism. But now the rug has been yanked out from under me and I have no idea how I'm going to keep up with my bills. I'm just sick about this and truly frightened about what I'll do for income. I'm a licensed massage therapist, but LMT jobs will not cut it to cover both my rent plus living expenses. It's why I got into the happy ending, and I hate that expression, business in the first place. What am I going to do? What many sex workers are going to do is be forced out onto the streets. Some will be forced onto the dark web. There was a study done by Baylor University economics professor Scott Cunningham that found when Craigslist created its erotic services section, when Craigslist began allowing people to post escort ads, the rate of female homicides, and I'm quoting here from a piece at the Huffington Post, in U.S. cities fell by 17% when they excluded crimes in which the victim knew her killer, such as domestic violence. The researchers concluded that sex workers who advertised online spent less time on the streets where they were more likely to face dangerous situations. This is what driving sex workers offline means. It means women and men are going to die as a result. People doing sex work of their own free will and consensually, which is the overwhelming majority of sex work that is done in this country, and people who are being trafficked, both groups will be at increased risk of death. Sex worker and sex worker rights activist Mistress Matisse, longtime friend of the show, she is here today to talk with us about SESTA and its impact. Also, its impact not just on the sex work community, but on all of us. And we're going to keep talking about SESTA because SESTA is an assault on all of our freedoms and it is also an attack on women, primarily women, 
doing sex work, who are going to die. Women are going to die because they're being driven offline where sex workers had some measure of control and some safety, could screen their clients, could share information about dangerous clients and dangerous situations. This is a disaster for the sex work community. And anybody out there who supports SESTA and supports driving sex workers offline in an effort to end sex work, it's not going to end sex work. It is, however, going to end some sex workers. Again, Mr. Smatis is here. We're going to talk about it a little bit more later. We will also be talking about this a lot on future shows. Right now, though, your calls, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, not just about SESTA, coming up on today's show. Hey, Dan. I am a almost 30-year-old woman, straight. I just started dating this guy, and we went to his apartment to fool around. Going to my place is unfortunately not a possibility. We went to his apartment to fool around. He's a neat freak, neat freak, super clean, but I think he doesn't use sheets on his bed. We were like on top of like the comforter, so I, I don't know for sure, but I just have no idea how to bring this up because that's a giant no-go. And I feel bad because he's, it's clearly like a bachelor's apartment and he's tried to decorate and it's, the bed's no good. Don't know how to nicely tell him that I will not be getting in his bed or on his bed or anywhere near his bed again if there are not sheets. So single guy, bachelor pad, and you are an unexpected sex guest. What do you think is likelier that this is a dude who is so poorly socialized that he doesn't use sheets? He just has a mattress, no sheets, a comforter on top of it, and he lays down on a dirty stained mattress covered with ancient jizz stains, piss dribble, 100,000 million dead skin cells every night. Or he doesn't have a lot of sheets because he's a bachelor and he's a guy and maybe he was between sheets or maybe his sheets were in the dryer. His only set of sheets were in the wash and he hadn't yet put them back on the bed. And like a lot of people, maybe once in a while he sleeps on the mattress without the sheets when he doesn't remember to clean them or they're still wet and they're in the, not in the dryer yet. Or he doesn't sleep with sheets, which do you think is likelier? I think the between clean sheets, I think the between sheets doesn't have enough sheets. I think that is likelier than the he's a monster and an animal who doesn't ever use sheets, seems to me that it is the sort of thing that you can just bring up. If you want to seem crazy, you can bring it up now or you can wait and you can go back to his place. And before you have sex, you can peel back the comforter and peek underneath. And if there aren't sheets, you can ask the dude a direct question about it. Don't you have sheets? And then see what he says. Hopefully next time, since he knows you're coming and it's not going to be a surprise, the bed will be nicely prepped for you and we'll have sheets on it. Mystery solved. You don't even know that there weren't sheets. You fucked on the comforter on top of the bed. You're making this assumption that there weren't sheets on precious little evidence. I have to say, you don't want to seem like the crazy one right now. You kind of do to me seem like the crazy one. Give the guy the benefit of the doubt. Assume there were sheets under that comforter. If there weren't, if you got a pretty good look at the side of the mattress and there were no sheets, assume that his sheets were in the wash. And say nothing until you have evidence, hard, dead skin cell covered, piss dribbled on evidence that the dude doesn't use sheets. And then you should address it directly. And by address it directly, I don't mean passive aggressively offer to take him sheet shopping like your 
mom visiting him at the dorms, just straight up tell him what you told us. If he wants to keep fucking you on that bed or any other bed, he's going to have to invest in some goddamn sheets. Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at rescue. I live in an East Coast city. I'm a gay man in my 20s, and I have a problem. I've had a really hard time dating in the city that I'm in. I had one boyfriend in college, but we broke up when I moved to the city for work, and he didn't want to do long distance. And I just feel like with work, and school and hobbies and keeping up with friends, it's really, really hard to find time for dating. Now, I have a friend who lives in another city on the other side of the country, and he and I have a really great rapport. We web chat all the time and watch TV together, and we just had like a week-long hangout vacation situation that was really, really great. But I don't think that there's really any chance that he would move to DC or I would move to his location because we both have family and jobs tying us to where we are. And I don't know that I'm really that interested in doing something long distance. I'm just wondering what you think the cutoff is because really he and I get along so much better than anyone that I have met through dating apps in my city because we're college friends. We have similar interests. He's just a really nice and good person, but I'm not sure what to do. It seems a little bit like I'm just quitting dating because it's hard and doing something that isn't really what I want, this long distance type thing. Yeah, so if you have any advice for me, I'd appreciate it. Tried to call you back, couldn't get you. Was curious as to whether during that week that you two were together and you hung out, were you fucking? How was the sex? Is this just a really passionate, intense friendship? Or if you happen to be in the same place and at the same time, is there a sexual connection there that's just as intense and comfortable as your social connection, as your friendship? And if so, man, that is not something to set aside lightly just because geographically you aren't at the same place at this time. Your young circumstances change, new jobs and opportunities present themselves, particularly if you go looking for them because you want to be in a particular place where someone else is. Doesn't sound like you've discussed this with him. Sounds like you're assuming he wouldn't want to move to be closer to you because you don't want to move to be closer to him. And you're projecting onto him reasons he might not want to move that are actually the reasons you don't want to move. And you haven't sussed him out, extended the invitation, given him the option to even consider moving closer to you if that is indeed what you want. You say that this is easier, your relationship with him. You have this comfort and this rapport. That could be partly due to the fact that the stakes are really low here, that you both rely on each other and you have it in your heads you can't be together and you aren't technically together. So there's not a lot of risk in your interactions and you're able to relax and be really comfortable around each other. My concern is 
if what you want is a romantic partner and a sexual partner and you want intimacy and you want someone present, physically present in your life, in your apartment, in your bed, in your mouth, the amount of time and energy and focus that you are pouring into this relationship that may not ever be those things if you're not willing to move and he's not willing to move is preventing you from getting out there and doing the work of finding someone you could have those things with. He is right now, this person is meeting a lot of your social and emotional needs and you therefore have less incentive to put yourself out there and do the ugly business of dating and churning through the apps and sorting through the pile and finding the guys that you click with in the same way you click with this guy about TV shows and about chit chat and sexually and they happen to be in the same city where you are too. So if he's never going to move to where you are and you're never going to move to where he is, I would encourage you to dial it back. If not, go cold turkey for just a little bit, a couple of months so that you aren't content to lay around your apartment Skyping with someone while you watch Jessica Jones together so that you get out of the house and you feel deprived and you feel like your needs aren't being met and you get on the apps or you get in the bars or you reach out to friends that you haven't reached out to in a while and you ask them if you can go hang out, run around a little bit, throw a house party, have everybody over for a game night or a card night to your place or their place or something. Because I want you to have it all, girl. I want you to have that person that you can hang with and watch TV with and be on the couch with at the same time, not be on your own couches at opposite ends of the country and on Skype at the same time. Luck. Hey, Dan, longtime listener. My husband and I are bi-poly individuals living in the Midwest. My question is about my son. He's 12 years old. We are just edging into puberty. Uh, we are a sex-positive house. We discuss sex openly and freely within, you know, normal limitations of what you should say to a 12-year-old. Uh, my question is about masturbation. He is very anxiously waiting to get the sperm, as he calls it. Is it weird for his mom to buy him some lube and just leave it by the bed or just a random bottle of lotion? We've had some talks about it, but me being the mom, they seem kind of squirted out talking to me about it. They talk to my husband. I'm just curious, from a male perspective, is it weird to have your mom buy lube? It's not going to be like, hey, oh my God, I bought you lube. I'll just kind of discreetly leave it by the bed. But I was curious what your thoughts were on it. Most 12-year-old boys' capacity for being mortified sexually kind of functions as a gas. It can expand to fill all available space. And that includes, you know, kids raised in pretty sex-positive environments. There's something about the onset of puberty that panics all of us. It doesn't matter how sex-positive a household that we grew up in. You know, we hear about sex when we're really little, when we ask where babies come from, and adults tell us what it is adults do to make babies or enjoy themselves or experience pleasure sexually together. And we're horrified and appalled. And we say, we're never going to do that. That's gross. Ick. And then along comes puberty, and suddenly we're being dragged toward that thing that we thought was so icky and gross when we heard about it by our genitals. And it can induce a little kind of sex negativity panic, even in the kid with the most sex positive parents who've been as kind of open and progressive and communicative as parents can possibly be. So if you leave a bottle of sex lube by your son's bedside, his mortification will probably be of similar scale to the mortification you would experience if you waved your hands over the head and said, yippee, I brought you some lube and waved a sign and had a little parade up and down your block before you presented him with a bottle of lube. My suggestion would be to stock the bathroom with appropriate lotions, a vino, whatever, particular 
viscous, gooey shampoos, whatever, and let him figure it out for himself. If your son is uncircumcised, if he has his foreskin, he may not even need lube. A lot of kids who have their foreskins masturbate by moving their foreskins back and forth across the glands and never, ever use lube. But if your son is circumcised, he probably does need lube. There's all sorts of pervertible, not designed for sex lubricants in the house, and I think you should stock up on those. And you can even add a bottle to a shelf in the bathroom that you know he'll see, you know he accesses for hair goo or toothpaste or whatever else that is more of a explicit sexual lubricant. Let him stumble over it. Let him swipe it. Don't put it next to his bed. Don't have a parade. And you know what? For the 12-year-old boy, putting it next to the bed, having the parade, he will experience both as equally mortifying. Stock up the bathroom. Let him figure it out for himself. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I am a 32-year-old cisgendered female living in the Midwest, um, and I had a question about blowjobs. So I like giving them, and my boyfriend doesn't like receiving them. He told me when we first started dating that uh, when I asked him like things he was into or wasn't into, and he said he wasn't into blowjobs, which, you know, at first I was like, oh, okay, that's actually not too bad. And then, you know, I, I kind of realized that I liked doing it, that I feel kind of sexy doing it. And I tried prying into exactly what this was, you know, was it that the last person he was with really didn't like them or, you know, made him feel bad about it? Or was there some reason? And I've, I've come at it every way and he just, he doesn't, he doesn't like them. And I'm wondering if this is something that I should push and if it's okay to push, because if I were, you know, the man, and I was pushing oral sex on my partner, then that would be seen as, you know, fairly abusive behavior. And should I be pushing the issue? Um, you know, he says he just thinks it feels kind of weird. Um, and so I'm wondering, like, if it's something that I should, you know, say, I, I like doing it, can I do it? You know, it adds lubrication, I feel kind of hot. Or is that kind of abusive behavior and I would be sort of forcing him to do something that he didn't want to do? It's something that I strangely miss doing and didn't think that that would happen. So when you felt like you had to suck dick, your past relationships, you weren't that excited about it. You weren't that into it. And now that you don't get to suck dick, you really miss it. You really want that dick. You really want his balls slapping your chin. I understand. I feel your pain. First Backing up props to you guys for having a what are you into conversation where you were both empowered in that moment or those moments while you were having those conversations to rule anything in, rule anything out, be really honest with each other about your likes and dislikes and shed the expectations and assumptions that people make about their sex partners based on their genders or their sexual orientations. And one of the assumptions made about men is that all men, particularly all straight men, love having their dicks sucked. And it's not necessarily true. There are guys out there who don't like oral. Not because they think their genitals are smelly or disgusting or gross. Not because they had necessarily terrible experiences in the past with people who went down on them in ways that made them feel demeaned or degraded or used. But just because the sensation is too intense or they just find it unpleasant. It doesn't work with their nerve endings and their erotic imaginations. It just doesn't work for them. And you miss it. So what should you do? Should you push? No. But you can be honest about how you feel. And I think we can be honest about how we feel about something that we would like to do that perhaps our partners don't enjoy or don't want to do. 
without tipping into the coercion zone where you can say, I get that you don't like having your dick sucked. Sometimes I really miss it. I really enjoyed it. And oddly, <laughs> I miss it more now than I ever thought I would because when I was in relationship with guys who wanted blowjobs, I, I did it and I enjoyed it. But it wasn't until I wasn't doing it because I was with somebody who didn't like it that I realized how much I enjoyed it and now how much I miss it. And then see what he has to say and draw him out. You're assuming – there was trauma, that he was with some girl who made him feel bad about wanting to have his dick sucked or gave him lousy blowjobs or had braces or whatever. And he has this association with blowjobs that's negative, painful memories or painful physical experiences and he can't go there anymore. And maybe that's it. And maybe you can repair that. If he had bad experiences with oral, good experiences with oral can help somebody tap into what's so great about oral. But if it's just a sensation thing, there's really not a lot you can do about that. That doesn't mean that he might not be able to, to go there a little bit and allow you to suck his dick now and then. For some guys who don't like blowjobs, it's not about the blowjob itself. It's not about getting their dick sucked. It's about the point of orgasmic inevitability and the orgasm. And suddenly that sensation, having their dick sucked, having a tongue working over the head of their cock is just too intense. It's painful. Some women have a similar experience during cunnilingus. Whereas they're climaxing, the pressure on their clit or the tongue on their clit or the lips on their clit is too much, too intense. And if their partners take the tack of really driving the point home when their partner is getting close to orgasm and doubling down on the intensity level, that can leave somebody not wanting to have their pussy, not wanting to have their dick sucked. Because that moment when you begin to climax and really all those nerve endings are on fire, that can be too intense. So – the deal you may be able to make with him, and again, this is a conversation you need to have with him about his dick, not about me with mine, is that oral can be foreplay, that there can be some cock sucking that gets folded in around the edges of what for him are his primary interests, mutual masturbation, PIV, anal if you guys are doing anal. And then you can progress. You can move on to a sex act and to a mode of climaxing where the sensations won't be so intense. So have the conversation with him. Draw him out. There's nothing coercive about asking someone to really unpack for you why it is that something that a lot of people enjoy and that you enjoy isn't something that they want to do. Because you might be able to find a little zone of compromise or you might come to a better understanding and more empathy for your partner about why this is, as long as you guys are together, this is off the menu. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with longtime friend of the Savage Lovecast, longtime Savage Love guest expert, Mistress Matisse. You should be following her on Twitter if you give a shit about social justice and where that movement intersects with sex workers' rights. Hey, Matisse, thanks for joining us. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. So I, I wanted you to come in because I wanted to keep having a conversation about FOSTA-SESTA. And a lot of people only just heard about it because it was the reason the passage of Fosta-Sesta by the Senate and the House, the reason that Craigslist yanked down their personal ads last week. And that woke up some folks to the fact that there was some draconian legislation that was on the march, hasn't been signed by Trump yet, is not law yet, but it is coming. So for people who've only just started paying attention because of Craigslist, what is Fosta slash Sesta and why should they be concerned? Uh, it's a bill that was recently passed by the House and the Senate by a fairly veto-proof majority, I fear. Uh, and it's a very, very bad law that's going to hurt a lot of people. Um, 
all kinds of people, even people who were not, you know, the intention of the law to target are going to be harmed by this, as we see in the closing of Craigslist Personals, which mm-hmm. had nothing to do with sex trafficking, uh, but are, are going to be collateral damage. There's going to be a lot of collateral damage. So these bill. bills ostensibly target sex traffickers who are trafficking people who are doing sex work under duress. This, this is the argument that yeah, they support. Right, right. Tra- people being trafficked under duress, doing sex work, not of their own free will because they're being pimped or coerced or they're minors who've been trafficked. Mm-hmm. Um, and these bills make internet sites criminally liable if people are being trafficked on their platforms like Backpage, like Craigslist, like Christian Mingle and Farmers Only potentially too <laughs> in the end. Yes. And it's a carve out to legislation that previously protected internet sites, platforms from activities that people engage in on those platforms. If I defame someone on Twitter, I, you can't sue Jack at Twitter because I defamed somebody on Twitter. Right. This upends the freedoms that made the internet the internet. Yeah, this is gonna this is gonna change the internet as we know it if it, if it goes into law and, and we have every reason to think that it will. Um, it is a, a censorship package that is cloaked in the language of saving trafficking victims. Well, I don't. I mean. All that stuff was illegal before. It's always been illegal to traffic people. It's always been illegal to pimp people. It's always been illegal to sexually exploit someone in any way, in any time or place, including the internet. Mm -hmm. That's already illegal. So there was no – some people talk about a loophole. They were closing a loophole. No, the Communications Decency Act of 1996 contained a provision, provision 230, that said that a website was not responsible for the – there's things that its users posted on it, like Twitter, for example, or Facebook, or any other place where you post, where you have posts. But the posters are responsible. Yeah, you're responsible. The site is not. And that has enabled us to have the, the, the internet as we know it. Um, this is going to gut all of that. And it's really hard to say exactly what's going to happen, but the people that's going to fall on most are sex workers. And one of the things that the internet, as we've known it up till now, did was it made doing sex work safer yes. for people who are doing it of their own free will. and. Slightly paradoxically and a little difficult to talk about, also for people who weren't doing it of their own yes, free will. Yes. And this law is going to drive sex workers off the internet, make sex work more dangerous yes. for everyone who yes. is doing it for whatever reason that they're doing it. Yes. And the people pushing it insist that they're doing this to protect or save or rescue sex workers when what they're actually doing is making sex work more dangerous for anybody who might be doing it. Right. They, they really are. This is not going to protect anyone from being trafficked. It's not going to help anyone who's being trafficked. All it does is provide a way for the federal government to go after websites. So they, there's no individual people being saved in this bill. It's all about the government wants to take a shot at these fat, juicy, money-rich targets, mm-hmm. and this is how they're going to do it. And they want to run sex workers out of the public sphere because the public sphere has become the Internet. They don't want us there. This is this is literally like this is like the, the online version of them driving up a bus and loading us all onto it and taking us to jail. I mean, it's yeah, we're not allowed to be present anymore. Unfortunately, most people aren't sex workers. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who don't do sex work or don't know any sex workers personally mm-hmm. uh, buy into the sex negative bullshit and the stereotypes about sex work and think, well, so if this makes it harder to do sex work, people shouldn't be doing sex work in the first place. I'm all for it. Well, okay, so it's going to affect you, though, because personal ad sites are going to shut down. You, as an individual person, will not be able to talk about sex, even non-sex work, but just regular sexy, sexy stuff, uh, without risking the wrath of the federal government. It's a censorship bill. Mm-hmm. It is a censorship bill. How is it going to prevent people from just talking about sex on the internet? 
Because the where, whatever site you're talking on now has, and see, this law is written so that it applies retroactively, which is a very unusual thing in a law, that something you did when it wasn't illegal could become illegal retroactively. Oh my God, I wasn't familiar with that aspect of Oh, it. yeah. Yeah. So that's why I see people on Twitter uh-huh. saying they're going back through their posts and uh-huh. eliminating sex workers. I know right. on Twitter, elim- like deleting posts that they posted eight years ago yeah. where they talk about doing sex work. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, we have to erase ourselves from the past as well as the future. Oh, my God. And so in, in, if you've been talking about sex, it, because if they use phrases like promotes or facilitates, that's a very elastic phrase. If I say, hey, sex work is great, am I promoting it? When I have sex workers on my show and I yeah. talk about how to do sex work yeah. safely, when I mm-hmm. advise people who write into me that they might want to think about hiring a pro, mm-hmm. you want to have that kind of three-way where the third person evaporates the instant it's over. Yeah. You can't say that anymore. You will not – I mean legally without – but you will be committing a crime if you say that. Oh my god. I yeah. say that all the time. Yeah. You, you will – you talk to your lawyer. I mean I'm not even kidding you. You should – because there could be a problem. That's been in my column probably yeah. over the last 27 years yeah. dozens of times. Yeah. And if yeah. it's retroactively applied, do yeah. I have to go back over the 27 years you might. and eliminate those columns, delete them? You should talk to your lawyer. I'm, I'm dead serious. Okay, so that's the problem for the sex advice columnists of the world. <laughs> yeah. When Craigslist Personal shut down, I began to hear from people who were swingers, from people who mm-hmm. had like really obscure out there kinks and they were looking for other people who shared them, from people who were closeted and mm-hmm. they preferred Craigslist Personals because it was totally anonymous. You didn't have to register. You didn't have to give them your own email address, mm-hmm. that it was double blind somehow. There's a way to put on Craigslist without it ever being able to be traced back to you. That is not the case for OKCupid. It's not the case for yeah. Christian Mingle or Farmers Only, which is why those weren't the preferred sites, not of people even doing sex work, mm-hmm. but people with kind of out there sex lives who were looking for, you know, a, a dude to cuckle you with your wife or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I started hearing from those people the minute Craigslist personals went down. Yeah. All that stuff is going to go away if this, if this goes through. Um, any, any, and it's not that the people themselves and, you know, individually will be chased down by the feds and, you know, arrested for posting an ad, but the site is simply not going to allow them anymore. They don't dare. Uh, they saw what happened to Backpage a year or two ago. Uh, they, they've seen the damage it can cause, and they're just not going to do it. I mean, yesterday I found out that a furry site, a, a, a personal site for furries had shut down because they were afraid of being, you know, come after by the federal government. And even though it's a site for furries. Are they doing No, they're not doing sex work. But it's, 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 but it's a sexual thing, and people talk about sex. And there's no automated content filtering system that can weed out only sex workers, only those dirty whores, and leave the nice, good people talking about sex. No. It's going to have a completely chilling effect on all sexual speech because they can't be sure that, you know, you're talking about having furry sex, but maybe you're, maybe there's a code and this is all about money. So basically no discussion of sex online, period. That's what they're going for. They won't achieve that, of course, but any platform that allows that kind of conversation is opening themselves up to a federal criminal charge. And the federal government has a long and sorted history oh, yeah. of persecuting people for speech when it is yeah. about sex. We've enjoyed mm-hmm. a kind of sort of freedom multiple summers over the, yes. since the internet came online. It allowed yes. people to engage online anonymously, to practice being who they really were and interact with people um, and really kind of – get used to identifying as X, Y, or Z, as a furry, as a gay, even just as a gay person. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, people doing sex work and making sex work safer. This is just 
I don't know what to do. There's, there isn't the like panic and rioting in the streets that I think there should be about this bill. I, I, yeah, people don't really understand that it's not really about sex work. It's going to hit sex workers the hardest and it's going to hit the poorest and most vulnerable sex workers the hardest. They're going to be pushed back out into the street where they're in far greater risk of, of, of danger, of attack and all kinds of crimes. So yeah. But, but even during the Obama administration, they were going after sex worker message boards. Um, the Obama Justice Department, where they were going after sex worker message boards and pulling them down. And these were places where sex workers could exchange information about dangerous clients, offer each other advice. And so this isn't – it's not as if we haven't seen sex workers in the online space persecuted in the past. Yes. But this is of a different quality. This is – I mean this is a a magnitude larger – like we had that, that situation here in Seattle where the Seattle cops went and arrested, you know, Sydney Brownstone did a wonderful story on it, mm-hmm. uh, how they're actually taking money from an in-demand, which is an anti-prostitution organization, an in-demand organization. Uh, and so we got some really great reporting about that and that case is ongoing. Uh, but yeah, now it's going to be of an order of magnitude larger. So all of you out there who are living your lives online, all of you out there who are meeting sex partners and romantic partners online, which is 70 plus percent of same sex couples now meet online, Mm -hmm. something like 40, 50 percent plus of opposite sex couples now meet online. Mm -hmm. All of that is going to go away potentially. Potentially. Yeah. I mean, I I am sure that some of the larger sites like match or whatever will like hire some lawyers and send lobbyists and all that stuff. And they'll be able to, because they don't really talk about sex and they're kind of personal ads, but Mm -hmm. anything that discusses sex or, and it doesn't have to be on a personal side. I mean, I can be on Twitter or any other social media. And if I talk about sex too much or the wrong way, they will shut down my account. I've had friends count already be shut. Uh, let's see in the wake of this, they are, Google is taking, uh, video files off of pornographers, uh, performers hard drives and that's a legal form of sex work they're not doing anything illegal but still in all their content has been stolen and uh, they've had their accounts shut down they're off twitter they're off instagram um they're not facebook of course uh, we're just we're being driven out of the public eye as much as possible and nothing good happens to sex workers when they're even more driven underground that's what that's what drives me crazy that's what makes me want to grab an end demand end sex work person and shake them Everything that they do, that they claim to be doing to protect and save and rescue sex workers, actually imperils sex workers. And at bottom, they don't give a shit because they think sex workers should be punished and punished endlessly. And if it makes sex work more dangerous, good. Those whores shouldn't have been doing that in the first place. It parallels for me the way – Right-wingers on abortion. Yes. If you make it illegal, it's there are still going to be abortions, but they're going to be a lot more dangerous and women are going to die and they're like, Good. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. They, they really want us to just disappear and, and be unhappy and go away and not bother them anymore and not be our dirty, hoary selves anymore. And so does this put websites like Swap, Sex Workers yeah. Outreach Project, at risk? Yeah, because one, another part of the bill is that it makes it um, illegal to, uh, to, to personally facilitate – uh, prostitution. Now, Swap goes out and does street outreach and gives out free condoms and hands out, you know, and that's facilitating prostitution. We will no longer be able to go and do street outreach le- without risking, you know, a big legal criminal situation. So instead of recognizing that as a harm reduction model yeah. that makes people who may be doing sex work at this moment yeah. safer and likelier to survive it, a transition out of it. Yeah. We can't do that now. No one can do that. FOSTA and SESTA. Sesta yes. It, most people are hashtagging it SESTA. Do you know what SESTA stands for? Uh, Survivor something something. Yeah, I don't offhand. Go online, hashtag S-E-S-T-A, mm-hmm. read about it, follow Matisse at Mistress Matisse on Twitter. Well, do as long as I'm able because I'll probably be kicked off soon. <sighs> um, Am I going to get kicked off Twitter? I tweet I, I out my 
goofy sex advice column I, once a I, week. I don't. You have to talk to your lawyer, man. I, you know, <laughs> this is. I'm not. I'm not kidding. This is very serious. So yeah, I'm talking to my lawyer. Everyone I was talking to their lawyers. Um, please do follow me online as long as you can. There's a, an excellent hashtag. Uh, hashtag Let Us Survive. And that's also a hashtag for people who are fighting against SESTA and VASTA. But yes, Mr. Matisse, uh, that's my name. Come follow me at Twitter. I'll be keeping you up to date with all the latest updates as long as I'm there. And it's passed the House, passed the Senate. It has not yet been signed. It hasn't. And it was signed, I believe, on the 23rd. And so it passed I, on the 23rd. Yeah. So as, as of this yeah, recording, as of the moment that we were recording, Donald Trump has not signed this thing. Not that we know of. And he probably would have said if he had. Although, with this administration, you never know. Uh, but the, the, the idea that, that that asshole who has definitely patronized sex workers yes! over the decades, yes! we are hearing and watching Stormy Daniels on 60 Minutes talking about the sex work that she did for Donald Trump, that that asshole, that he's the one who's going to sign this bill that's going to yeah. destroy the lives and endanger so many women and men who are yeah. out there doing sex work is just – the hypocritical, appalling cherry on this shit Sunday. I can't really, even process it. Yeah, it does me. I mean, I think why he's, of course, he's going to fuck over everybody. He's going to fuck us over too. And this is us getting fucked over really hard and really badly. And you're going to get fucked over too. Hashtag SESTA, hashtag let us survive. Get online, educate yourself. Say something to your elected officials. Come out. Oh, please. Yes, yes, yes. In support please. of sex workers, but also in support of your own right to be a sexual person and discuss sex yeah. on the fucking internet. Yes, yes. Thank you for dropping in. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. Hey, Dan. This is a 24-year-old girl from a pretty big city in the Midwest. I am running into this problem because I have bipolar 1. I've been experimenting with meds for the past 10 years, which monopolized most of my free time or time to be social until recently. But recently, I got put on a life-saving medication that really has changed my entire life. And I really do want to get out there and start dating. But unfortunately, one of the side effects of this medication is that it slows my metabolism down so much that I gained an insane amount of weight. And I've struggled with eating disorders all my life. And gaining about 80 to 100 pounds in a year was very difficult for me. I'm finally getting to a place where I can accept and work with it and even feel confident sometimes. But I don't know how to date. And so I've been turning to dating apps and have honestly been avoiding having pictures taken myself, especially that are accurately convey how my body looks. And that's a big part of the dating app deal. I'm wondering if you have any tips about getting over, getting out there in a situation like this or navigating through all these dating apps that are frankly all just about snap judgments based on profile pictures. I'm at a place in my life where I'm looking for someone who's in a relationship, who's looking for a relationship of some sort, not just a series of hookups. And I'm finding it hard to get past the transient flip left, right, based on a picture that for me is now six months old. A lot of relationships begin as hookups. And that was the case even before dating apps came along. And there was a lot of swiping left and swiping right that went on. It just happened in person. People would check each other out from across a room, across a bar, across a singles bar, across a gay bar, and instantly flip left, flip right. What's actually kind of great about the flip right, flip left apps out there is that you're matched with somebody who flipped the same way that you did. And you don't have to 
waste time or risk rejection approaching people who don't wish to be approached by you, which a lot of people had to do in bars and clubs. We're always talking about technology and and what's dehumanizing about it or what the new problems that it may have created. But every once in a while, we need to slow down and appreciate some of the problems of the ways in which we used to go out there and find each other that these apps solved. And now that these problems are solved, we forget that they were ever there in the first place and we romanticize the way it used to be. So yeah, there's a lot of judging based on that pick, based on that first visual impression. That went on before the dating apps came along. And the dating apps make some of that first impression stuff actually a little bit more efficient and a little less rejection risky for everyone. I would encourage you to get new pictures taken, new pictures that are accurate. There are going to be some people out there who are attracted to you, perhaps despite your size. There are going to be some people out there who are attracted to you because of your size. I think the trick is to find someone attracted to you because, but who doesn't fetishize you because, particularly when you're unconventionally attractive in the way in which perhaps you are unconventionally attractive. You don't want to be fetishized, but you also don't want to be pitied. You, you want to be with somebody who's excited to be with the physical person that you are, the object that you are. We're also objects moving through time and space in the world. The risk for larger people when they put themselves out there online is they're going to attract some grief from asshole people. I would encourage you to develop a thick skin if possible. Also encourage you to work on that block button finger and just block people instantly without thinking about it, without responding. If it helps, this is new for you. You've gained a lot of weight very rapidly. If it helps, enlist a friend who can do the initial sorting for you of people who've responded on Tinder or OkCupid or wherever else you decide to put yourself out there. And a friend who looks through initially first responses and deletes responses from people who are just being gratuitously cruel and fuck those people and also people who are clearly salivating fetishists who are only there to objectify you. And that person can then hand you your phone or you can jump onto OkCupid after they've given it a pass and encounter less awfulness in the world, awfulness that you should be shielded from. And hopefully you have a friend out there who you could enlist in shielding you from some of it. But put yourself out there and you are who you are and you're the size that you are. And before somebody else can embrace you, you've got to embrace you. You've got to model that for the people that you want to bring into your life to do that. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old trans masculine person in Chicago. Um, really, I am just got engaged to my boyfriend of several years, and we are looking to explore premarital counseling. I grew up super religious not really into that anymore. But something that I really valued in growing up was that couples would meet with a pastor for several sessions before getting married. Now, looking at um, secular therapy or counseling services here in Chicago, not necessarily finding that as an option. And I'm wondering if you're familiar with that type of service or that type of counseling that is secular before getting married. Book a session with a couples counselor. Easy. Rather than a premarital counselor, rather than some pastor who specializes in her haranguing young people before they marry about what everybody's imaginary friends are going to expect of them once they're married, speaking to a couples counselor, somebody who works with couples who are in crisis regularly about your future and perhaps identifying some of the 
trap doors that this counselor has seen other couples fall through over the years and unpacking your relationship with this person and maybe an advanced diagnosing some issues or areas where you guys aren't communicating well that over time could really present problems in your relationship. I think that would be really beneficial. Terry and I did that, not before we married, but before we adopted. We had a couple of sessions with a counselor, a counselor who at the end of the second session told us we actually were communicating just fine and we didn't really need her and she felt bad taking our money and maybe we should just go talk to each other without her in the room. And that worked out pretty well for us. But you can do that. You can go see a couple's counselor like we did. It was helpful and it was validating and you don't have to get it at the Jesus shop. And most people who are secular who are going to marry uh, don't go in for premarital counseling because they don't have to convince a priest to officiate, to, to, to sign off on behalf of the Pope and Jesus and everybody else on their nuptials. And so there aren't a lot of premarital secular counselors out there. But there are tons of postmarital couples counselors out there. And they have valuable insights that they can share with you and your fiancé. And congratulations on your upcoming wedding. And I hope it's beautiful and I hope you guys enjoy a long and wonderful life together. Hi, Dan. I'm a female calling from Canada. Uh, my parents have recently threatened to disown me uh, if I continue to see my current boyfriend. He happens to be in the military. He's very down to earth. I've been dating him for a while. But despite attempts to try to go into counseling and explaining to, to them uh, what I see in him and that he doesn't have any serious issues. I don't want to hear any of it. I'm just wondering, do I have a future with somebody where I possibly may have to leave my parents for, or is that even a choice that I can make? This is a hard one because I don't have a lot of information to work with here about your parents' objections. You actually don't really unpack what your parents' objections to this guy are. The only one you cite is that he's in the military and the implication is that your parents disapprove of people in the military, uh, soldiers, Marines, Air Force pilots, whatever, so strongly that they can't abide you dating somebody who's in the military. To me, that seems kind of biased and kind of prejudiced and there are certainly problems with the, the military and, and the ways in which America has projected its power into the world. But I think your parents owe it to this guy to judge him on his merits. And if you love him, that should be enough for them to attempt to find some common ground, attempt to look past what they object to about what he does right now for a living and who he is. And if your parents can't do that, well, then you've been put in a position where you're going to have to choose the person you love and the person you want to be with romantically and sexually and your parents, the people you came from. Let me tell you, as a homo, as an old homo, the numbers of people I saw who had to choose between the people they wanted to be with and the people they loved and their families of origin and the numbers who chose, of course, I wouldn't know them if they weren't openly gay and moving through the world as openly gay men, the numbers who chose the people that they loved and were happier for it. And then their families either got over it and came around or didn't. Your circumstance reminds me a bit of people who come out despite their family's disapproval and have a same-sex relationship despite their family's disapproval and invite mom and dad to the wedding. And mom and dad don't come to the wedding. And mom and dad have a kind of a tantrum. And they threaten to disown. And they threaten to never speak to again. And 
the gay kid has to call mom and dad's bluff. Otherwise, mom and dad are going to control your whole life and dictate terms and tell you who you can be with and who you can't be with. And that isn't the kind of relationship that any self-respecting adult gay man wants to have with his mom and dad. And it's not the kind of relationship that you would want to have with your mom and dad either, I suspect. One little caveat, one little asterisk I want to put here at the end. Is there something else? Are there other reasons that mom and dad object to this guy that have nothing to do with the military? Is he a knuckle-dragging, Trump-supporting, white supremacist, argument-spouting, Breitbart meme-forwarding nightmare? Well, then maybe I'd side with mom and dad. Is it like that couple in Massachusetts who told their daughter not to date the Nazi kid and then the Nazi kid came and shot mom and dad? Is it something like that? Is there more here than your letting on. You know, sometimes we have to live our own lives and do something that our parents don't want us to do, don't approve of, and we have to risk being estranged from them to be true to ourselves and to live our authentic lives. I do think we owe it to our parents to hear them out though, particularly when it's about love. And if our parents aren't just fucking psychotic bigots, because sometimes our parents and our friends and our siblings can see in someone that we're dating what we can't see, that there is a problem there that love has blinded us to. That cliche, love is blind. Love is blind. It is a cliche for all sorts of good reasons because so many of us have watched that happen. So many of us have done that. We were just so besotted with someone. We were just so fucking infatuated, fucking crushed out, fucking love hormone drunk all the time and fucking all the time that we couldn't see all the red flags that were apparent to our friends, our siblings, our parents. So if there's more here than just he's in the military and they disapprove of the U.S. industrial military complex and Afghanistan and Iraq and Chile and everything else, then you need to weigh what mom and dad are telling you against how you feel right now in the moment. But if it's just the military and mom and dad are trying to control you by threatening to disown you, trying to dictate to you who you can love and who you can be with, you will have to call their fucking bluff. Just like some faggot in 1979, you're going to have to call mom and dad's bluff and love who you love and hope that in five years or 10 years, they come the fuck around. Hey, Dan. I am a 34-year-old married woman in Canada, mother of one of an 18-month-old. I have been with my husband for... Seven years recently, my husband told to me that he not only was on Tinder, but he had also signed up for Ashley Madison a few times. He says that he never pursued anything, it never went anywhere. Maybe I don't fully believe him, but in the end, I got over it. It was traumatic to hear it in the beginning, but it all leads me to where I'm at now. My question to you is, I am considering opening our marriage, not because I'm very interested or at all at this point interested in being with anybody else, but I've come to realize through listening to your show that we just have different sex drives. I have my son and I haven't fully recovered physically from that 18 months ago and my drive is just not there right now. I feel bad for my husband. I know he would love to have it more. And so I'm considering, because I really don't see anything wrong with just sex, that we open our marriage. My question is, what are some of the things 
I should know going in? What are some surprises that I might feel that I wasn't expecting? What if I do get jealous? What if it turns out that this isn't for me? Do I have a right to say I'm okay with it and then that I'm not? Because I guess you don't know until you do it. So maybe just some advice on opening a marriage. So when you caught your husband on Ashley Madison uh, and other sites, did he, you know, he said he was he hadn't actually done anything. It wasn't his intention to do mm-hmm. anything. Did he tell you why he was there? Was it to fantasize about maybe doing something? Was he horny and this was a kind of interactive pornography for him? What did he tell you about why he was there? He has never really been able to come to a determination of why he was there. Bullshit. But he has been able to sorry, say, sorry, I know, that's bullshit. He knows he why he's there. Say, he knows, and that's why I say, how are you going to know that you never want to do it again then if you don't know why you were doing it? And his response to that is, well, I just realized what was at stake and it's not worth it and I don't want to and it's, no, I'll, I'll, I'm over it. Okay, so he did. He realizes what was at stake and it wasn't worth mm-hmm. it. And it was what? Mm-hmm. It was fucking somebody who isn't his wife. It was getting some sex outside of his marriage, outside the relationship. That's what it was. That's what he was looking for. So he kind of has told you he just is too embarrassed or too afraid to say, to define it, the meaning of it in that context. But Mm -hmm. it sounds like he doesn't need to be afraid to, to, to share that with you. No, I mean, I think at first it was more the shock of everything and, and the way it was found out was, you know, six years of separation, a friend told somebody who, and then told me, and then you're kind of looking around at everybody like, do you know, do mm-hmm. you know, do you, that's the part. And the indiscretion, you know, it's been, it, it humiliated yeah. you potentially publicly and, and, yeah. and you didn't know he was out there. And so when a friend came to you, you were probably shocked, mortified. You probably went My first flushed. response was like, oh no, no, no. They must've done this at work as a joke. Like, right. oh no, no, no. And then she said, well, there's two profiles. One looks seemingly innocent. The other, it's a shirtless selfie. And let me tell you, my husband doesn't even take selfies, let alone shirtless selfies. <laughs> I knew right there. I was like, mm, okay. 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 You know, there there are some people in your situation where the, the wife has a low libido. And it's not always the wife with a low, low libido. Sometimes it's the husband with a low libido. But right now you have a very young child. You haven't completely physically mm-hmm. recovered yet. Your, your libido isn't there. Maybe your libidos have always been mismatched. And some people in your circumstance, some spouses in your circumstance will say to their partner, look, do what you need to do. Just don't embarrass me. And that's yeah, like a variation on the DADT thing. Don't ask, don't tell. And telling friends because you know we have uh, we know people in this community who are on Tinder who are on OkCupid so you being public on a site like that is telling me you mm-hmm. know 6 degrees of separation telling me but eventually telling me and it's going to embarrass and humiliate me in front of my friends so do what you need to do to stay married stay sane you know if you need to seek some outside sex you have my permission but it has to be done in such a way where it's not going to get back to me and it's not going to get back to people that we know in common who are then either going to come and tell me because they mm-hmm. think I need to know, or who are going to pity me and think I'm a fool. Right. That's, yes. Yes. The pity. I don't want anybody's pity. You right. know, it's, it's that, that's the main thing. One way so to I avoid, want him to, right. One way to mm-hmm. avoid that kind of pity is for you two to be very open mutually about the fact that it's an open relationship, that he can seek sex outside. That means you almost mm-hmm. being a part of his profile and you may not be comfortable broadcasting that so you know the deal for him might be look if you want to sleep with somebody else you can do that but you're going to have to do it the old-fashioned pre-internet way 
<laughs> of finding someone that you can have this kind of connection with. And you can do that on the internet. You just have to be incredibly discreet. You can't put your face out there. You can't put a picture out there that's clearly our living room. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. find somebody in a similar circumstance who's, you know, with somebody who's low libido who also has permission to find an outlet. And then, and then you have right. my you have my okay, and it won't then be a relationship extinction level event, right? If I find but out, yeah, because because that was that was the the me. So so your advice then would to just be literally don't ask, don't tell. Like as in, I kind of thought that the more I knew, the less I would feel left out of it or or blindsided by it. Oh, no, but no, maybe no. I don't want to know. No, I'm not saying you don't want to know. I, I was the variation on don't ask, don't tell was do what you ever need to do. Don't embarrass me. That can right, include right, telling right, right. if you would prefer to know so that you don't have to wonder. Like every time he says he's not going to be home tonight because he's got a thing, you don't yeah. want to be sitting there yeah. thinking, is the thing he's got tonight a work thing or is it a fuck thing? And yeah. how often are these fuck things going to come up? Like you can do a full disclosure, but don't embarrass me. And it's a little bit like there's telling, but there's no telling others. Don't embarrass me. You know, do what you need to right. do. Disclose it so I don't have to wonder so that every time you're out of sight, I'm not thinking you got – you're dicking somebody? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And what do you think about when he says, like, as soon as I opened this conversation, right away he, he was excited, I could tell, but then right away followed with, I wouldn't be comfortable with you being with anybody else. <laughs> Not that it's an issue right now, but is that weird? Is that kind of double standard? Not that I want to be with anybody. It's, it's a weird double standard our... that a lot of people have. Right, yeah. You know, yeah. They, they know that I could sleep with somebody else and feel no less committed to my wife and our family. But mm-hmm. but they have no way of knowing for sure that you are capable of the same thing. And so right. they they know what's in their hearts and they can only guess at what's in yours. And, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes when there's an open relationship where there's an imbalance, where one person has sex with other people and the other person doesn't, people then pity the person who's not having sex with anybody else because, mm-hmm. you know, they're not getting their half of the pint of ice cream. But if you're lactose right. intolerant, you don't like fucking ice cream, you don't want to eat the goddamn <laughs> yeah. ice cream, you're not being deprived yeah. of anything if you're not choking down something you don't want to eat. So right. it's about what makes you both happy. And, and what can seem to outside parties as an imbalance where one person has license to do what the other person not doesn't have license to do but has no desire to do. Right. Are we both going to bed happy at night? Right. Are you both content? Mm-hmm. And, and, uh-huh. and this is a negotiation and this changes over time. You guys had a monogamous commitment when you went into uh-huh. this marriage. Now you're sort of uh-huh. having a negotiation about whether that a strict monogamous commitment works for where you both are at right now with a young child, with your libidos where they're at, with your focus where it's at, with the, the, the intimate demands that a child makes on, you know, if you're the primary caregiver, you know, there, uh-huh. there's a kind of physical exhaustion at the end of the day and <sighs> a, a spouse uh-huh. or a partner coming home and wanting physical attention and just like, uh, be too much and you can't really be there for them after being pulled at and tugged at all day long screamed this, at and screamed <laughs> at by this other human being yeah so right yeah. now you're having this, you're having a renegotiation that doesn't mean that down the road you can't renegotiate again that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you can't right. close it back up that doesn't mean that potentially your husband may grow more comfortable over time with if you suddenly have a desire to sleep with somebody else Wrapping his head around that because I bet it – and you should say this to him. At the beginning of the relationship, I could not have wrapped my head around being comfortable with you fucking somebody else. Now I can. Mm-hmm. Very true. <laughs> now I can. And so right now what you're telling me is you are uncomfortable with the idea of me fucking somebody else. Yahtzee, I have no desire to fuck somebody else so you don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. Maybe in five years you'll feel differently. 
Right. Maybe in five years. Take it as it comes. Yeah, take it as it comes. Maybe in five years we'll be closed back up again. Maybe in 10 years we'll be swinging together. Yeah. You just never, you never know. Yeah. And, and yeah. so let's, what, what worked for us at the beginning of our relationship was monogamy. What might work for us now is I'm completely content with just you. All my needs are met. I'm content with you fucking other people in a way that doesn't embarrass or humiliate me in front of my community or my friends or my parents or my siblings or my coworkers or my neighbors. Mm -hmm. Figure out how you make that happen for yourself if you want some outside sex that doesn't embarrass me. Mm -hmm. And then down the road, we can keep having this conversation. We keep renegotiating. It sounds sound like you're in a, in a very healthy place. And, and beware of the people who tell you that unless you're fucking other guys too, that you're being done wrong. It's about what you want right now, what he wants right now, what works for you, what works for him, what works for you guys as a couple. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's the thing too. I think yeah, everybody's opinions too. I'm even nervous. I don't, a lot of my girlfriends know what happened. I don't think I'd be comfortable telling them where I'm at now because I think they would all just think that I'm making concessions or I'm, you know. There's something that you're going to have to commit to do for him too. You know, that deal, do whatever you need to do. Don't embarrass me. If he's doing his level best to, you know, not embarrass you, to, to conduct himself in such a way when he has sex with somebody else that there's no connection and it's not going to get back to a friend. And by accident, it does. By accident, like, mm -hmm. it, you know, some mutual friend finds out or happens to be a good friend of the person that he's been sleeping with and they bring it to you. You can't let him dangle out there. You can't let your friends think he's a cad and you're a victim. At that point, you may need to be able to say, like, oh, you tried your best to, to honor our compact and you know, mm -hmm. stepped on a rake by accident. I'm not going to let my friend think you're an asshole or I'm a victim. And then you have to go to your friend and say, this is okay with me. We talked about this. Right. But only if it had come up. I don't need to be, you know, everybody checks in and they all want to check in with me. And it's funny because it's not funny, but I think they're surprised. And I'm like, actually, we're kind of doing better than we ever have. Oh, uh, that's we so talk common. More. That's we, so common. Say that you to your know? friends. Say that to your friends. You know, we had this little crisis and now we're communicating better than ever. That is so mm -hmm. like everybody give your friends Esther Perel's books. I'm constantly recommending them. She doesn't tell people to have affairs to repair their relationships, but often in the wake of an affair or a near affair or a contemplated affair, the, the truth telling and, and the new communication that, that, that comes in the wake of that trauma re strengthens mm -hmm. the bond, brings the couple back together, makes them closer because now they're being kind of radically honest with each other. Yeah, I believe it. I'm a believer of it because it was almost like we were together before because we made this commitment we were supposed to be together. Now it's we ch we're choosing. Mm -hmm. We're choosing. And, and that's where this mind thought for me has been, well, how can we make sure we're both still happy? The last thing to say to your friends who are worried about you and think he's a terrible person for having gotten on Ashley Madison or OkCupid, okay people walk into bars every day and flirt. Right. You know, the, <laughs> yeah. you know, being online in a place where people are presumed to be single and flirting, lots of married people do it, not because they have any intention of cheating, just because they want to feel some affirmation, feel alive, feel desirable, mm -hmm. and then they take that home and literally plow that into their partners. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that was a big factor for him, too. I think he wanted to know he still had it. Exactly. And, and, mm -hmm. and you know, yeah. hearing uh, you still got it from the person who is obligated to say that to you, whether they believe it yeah. or not, isn't the same <laughs> yeah. as hearing it from some stranger who does not have to say that to you, does not have to pretend to keep the peace that you still got it. And then some stranger says you still got it because you had a drink in a bar on the way home. And then you go home to your partner and they say, you still got it. You're likely to believe your partner at that moment in the context of somebody yeah. else, some rando saying it to you. 
Yeah, I a can little see that. healthy yeah. flirtation. I, I don't think every relationship has to be non-monogamous for it to be successful. Uh, I don't think non-monogamy is the right relationship model for everyone. But a little outside mm-hmm. affirmation, a little outside erotic confirmation of your desirability from people who aren't your partners, I think is good for all relationships, open or closed. I think you guys are in a good place. Yeah. Don't be bullied by your Thank friends you. because you're supposed to be the victim or you have to play the victim to like shore up the cultural norms around monogamy. Mm-hmm. Own what yeah. you want and tell yeah. your friends that this is what I want and back the fuck off. Perfect. Thank you. I appreciate it. Good luck. Best to your husband. Thanks, Dan. Hey, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old straight married woman from Georgia. And I'm calling because I have a one-and-a-half-year-old daughter And my husband and I curse a lot. We don't edit ourselves or filter ourselves around our child. And we have received a lot of pushback from my mother and his mother about what's appropriate and, you know, criticisms like she'll go to, she'll start going to school and cursing in front of the teachers and and things like that. So far, She does talk, and we've never heard her say any of the words that we say, but I'm just curious about your take on it. Of course, we don't say anything too vulgar or situationally inappropriate, but we will use curse words for emphasis, and I don't really think there's anything wrong with that. I think that children should learn to hear those words and learn the appropriate place and time to use those words, just like I do. I'm a school teacher and I don't curse in front of my students. But when I'm at home and talking with my family, I feel like I should be able to speak freely and I want my child to be able to do the same. So I'm just interested to know your thoughts on it. Should I censor myself more around my child until she is old enough to understand the meaning of these words or are they just words and I should be able to say what I want around her? One of the things you model for your kids when you curse in front of your kids is thoughtfulness around the use of these words. These are powerful words and you have to think twice before you use them and think twice about who's in the room. Who are you using them in front of? What what are you using them in reference to? And so just tossing off the F-bombs and the S-bombs at home in front of your kids casually I don't think is – Sorry to side with mom here. I don't think that's in the best interest of your children. Not that your children should never, ever hear you use those words. Your children need to hear you use those words, but they also need to see that you're being thoughtful about when and where and how you use them. You don't use them in front of your kids at school because a teacher who tosses fuck around liberally isn't going to be employed for long. It would cause problems in your life if you swore at school the way you do at home. Well, one of the things you need to think about is it could cause problems in your kid's life if your kids use curse words themselves at school the way you use them at home without thinking that there might be an issue here. And so, you know, sometimes it feels redonkulous as an adult in your own home to slap your hand over your mouth when the fuck escapes without thinking and there's a kid in the room or have a swear jar that you put a dollar in so that your kids can have a pizza party every once in a while because mom's got such a potty mouth. But I think that that's wise because what it says to your kids is it's powerful words. You have to be careful about when and where you use them and in front of who and there can be consequences to using those words. So think about it. Can't pretend that your kids aren't going to hear them 
turn on the television set after your kids go to bed. Your kids are going to hear swear words. They're going to hear mom and dad laughing while the comedian on the Netflix special uses those words that no one's supposed to use. But one of the things you need to teach your kids is think about the consequences. Think about who's in the room. And you can do that without never using the words. You can do that while also occasionally using the words. Just you have to do the little, oh my God, I can't believe I said that, song and dance, a quarter in the swear jar, whatever you want to do, so that your kids get it. That they need to think also about who's in the room, when and if and where they decide to let an F-bomb fall. Hi, Dan. I'm a 37-year-old, cisgendered, polyamorous, pansexual um, woman in the rural South. And in 2013, I moved in with my parents when I left my ex-husband. My son and I have lived here since. And um, it provided me with a good home for my kid, lots of space to run around, garden. I could take care of my ailing mom who's died of Alzheimer's since then. And um, it was mutually beneficial. My dad has since found somebody else who's going to remarry I'm not out to my parents or any of my family, and I'm supposed to buy this house for my dad with land that I've inherited from my grandmother. We're going to trade, and it's a really good deal for me, and I feel like I'm cheating him. Like, if he really knew who I was, he wouldn't do this, and I want to come out, and I was wondering if it was incredibly selfish of me to wait until this deal is over with, and then be like, hi, I got the house. Um, you can't kick me out anymore because <laughs> I'm feeling a lot of guilt, like I'm misleading my extremely conservative family. And um, I was wondering what your take on that was. Sometimes queer kids have to lie to their parents to protect themselves. Uh, I don't think that that's active deception. It is lying under duress. And who put you under that duress? Think of the kid at college who's gay, lesbian, bi, trans, now out at college, but not out to mom and dad, because mom and dad have made it clear through their actions or their statements that if their kid was queer and out, that they would cut their kid off. And that kid has been put in a position of having to choose between their education and their future and telling the truth to their parents at this moment. And I tell those queer kids, yeah, you don't have to come out to your mom and dad. If they're going to retaliate against you, if they're going to treat you unfairly, if they're going to punish you, for being queer, by sabotaging your future, feel free to lie to mom and dad under duress. You can lie to mom and dad. They put you in this position. They created the duress. They are responsible ultimately for the fact that you had no choice but to deceive them. And I would place your case, although you're not in college, you're not that young, in the same file as lying to your parents under duress. So yeah, go ahead. Finish the deal. Do the land swap. You're not cheating your parents out of anything. Not revealing this information isn't causing your parents to accept a, a financial deal, a, a real estate swap that disadvantages them in any way. It's fair. It's just they wouldn't do it if they knew that you were queer, pan. So do it. And then tell them. Just like I tell the college kids who are worried about coming out because mom and dad will withdraw their support. Once you graduate, you've got your first job, come the fuck out. So once you do this deal, then dad's got the land and you've got the house. Come the fuck out already. Stop living in fear. Let mom and dad get the fuck over it. Once mom and dad are in a position where they can't retaliate against you. 
financially. They can't fuck up your future if you tell them the truth. At that point, you do need to tell them the truth. Hi, Dan and the tax savvy at-risk youth. You always say that people don't call in with good news. So I figured I'd call in. I'm someone who suffered from death grip syndrome for about 10 years now. And following your advice for the last two years or so, it's gone away. It's my penis has learned to respond to the correct stimuli. And anyone else who has this issue where you can't get off the way you see in movies, just give it a try. I guarantee you it'll work. I'm glad my advice for correcting death grip syndrome worked for you. And thank you for recommending to others that they follow my advice. Now I'm going to have to say what that advice is because you don't mention what the advice that you followed was that helped you correct your death grip syndrome. Death grip syndrome, of course, is my name for guys who masturbate with a fist that they just fucking tighten so hard, harder than any mouth or vagina or anus could ever tighten. And often they do it dry and it, some guys can't come then from the subtler, damper sensations of mouths, anuses and vaginas. And a lot of guys get really frustrated and they quote unquote try to fix it by just going and going and going. And then in frustration, after having fucked for half an hour or 40 minutes, they pull out, jack off at the end and come. And so it never gets any better because their dicks are always just sitting there going, yeah, if I just wait another 10 minutes, I'm going to get what I want. My advice for how to fix death grip syndrome and you're not the first person who took it, not the first person who let me know that it worked, you have sex and you fuck for as long as you and your partner want to fuck. And if you don't come, you don't come and you don't masturbate either. You don't at the end default to the death grip that created the problem in the first place. You starve your cock of the death grip and your cock will adjust. New neural pathways will be carved from the nerve endings in your shaft, in your balls, in your taint, and most importantly and critically for most men, the head of your penis, all the way up to the pleasure centers of your brain. And in desperation, after three months or six months or nine months, your dick will acclimate to subtler, damper sensations. And you will, with luck, fingers crossed, be able to come. Hey, Dan. Calling in regards to episode 597, the woman who had 40 hours go by before she heard back from her first date. It just seemed like it was kind of a red flag that you'd let that much time go by in the first place. Like, it's great that everything worked out in the end and that she was happy. But as far as emotional IQ goes, letting that much time go by just seems like it fails, like, the golden rule test. You know, how would he feel if 40 hours went by and no response of any kind? Before she called her back, I just thought it kind of sounded like she was trying to date an asshole. After you called her back and got the full story, it just sounded like she was trying to date a child. Hi there. Uh, this message is to the woman who went to a gay or went to a straight bar on gay night as a straight lady. As a lesbian, I would like to say that I think it's important to be very clear in these kinds of matters. There are plenty of lesbians who go to bar nights just to make out with people, and they probably wouldn't mind, even if you were straight, that you made out with them. But, you know, if you exchange numbers, if you're going to reach out to her again, I just think it wouldn't hurt to be super, super clear. Dan seemed to think that you were clear with her about your intentions, but I think it would be, wouldn't hurt to double back and be like, hey, just so you know, ha really haven't ever been with a woman before, never really even thought about it before. It never hurts to be really open and honest, and I think that's really where a lot of hurt comes from women who sleep with other women or, you know, hook up with other ladies who 
actually turn out be turn out to be straight. That being said, also as a lesbian, I can tell you it's actually kind of hot when straight ladies are interested and curious, and maybe she's into that. So just be clear, be communicative, be open. Hi, this is a comment for the caller about going through TSA with sex toys. I used to work for the airport security TSA, and Dan's totally correct. Nothing shocks TSA agents anymore, honestly. But I wanted to add that trying to hide things or make things seem like they're not there is the best way to have a bag check and the best way to ensure your stuff is dug through. It is the worst possible thing you can do. Also, TSA doesn't care about your weed. The more you try to hide your weed, the more likely they're going to find it and then have to pass it off to the port police department. But TSA does not care about drugs. People, please stop trying to hide your drugs in your luggage, roll them into cigarettes, and leave them like they're fine. No one cares. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. You should give us a buzz, of course, wearing a Savage Lovecast t-shirt. To get a Savage Lovecast t-shirt, go to savagelovecast.com slash shop. You'll also find my books and mugs and some other cool gifts. Check it out. And if you like my political rants at the top of the show, you should check out Blabbermouth, the Strangers Weekly Political Podcast, hosted by Eli Sanders with me and Rich Smith most weeks talking about the news of the week and what we can do in helping to build the blue wave coming to you, coming to this country in November. Check out Blabbermouth wherever you get your podcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Mistress Matisse on Twitter at Mistress Matisse. And please, again, check out the hashtag Let Us Survive on Twitter and read up about SESTA. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.